And today, um, I am going to be talking to you about something that I, I believe connects to the series that you have been in, that I hope is a good uh, capstone to the series that you've been in. Um, and it's also something the Lord's been teaching me a lot about in, in, in recent weeks and months. And um, so as I understand it, your series has been about returning to your first love, about returning to God with all your heart, about not drifting from him, about the dangers of having a cold heart toward him, uh, about the dangers of not completing your love for him. And today, uh, what we're going to be talking about is very much related to that. Today, I want to talk to you about loving God by loving people, okay? And so we're going to look at several places in Scripture, but we're going to jump off from uh, in Matthew chapter 22. So hopefully you have a Bible with you. You can go ahead and open there to Matthew 22. And we're also going to be looking at other Scriptures today, and they'll be on the screen, and we'll read a lot of those together. Um, but we will be looking at Matthew 22 in just a moment. Uh, but, but I kind of want to set your heart for this. I want to help you to be prepared to want to hear this, okay? And so I want to give you just a couple of quick references. In 1 Peter 4, um, in 7, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10, it says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, keep loving one another earnestly. It's pretty important that we love each other earnestly. And then along these same lines of the end of all things is at hand in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about what things are going to get like in the last days. I don't know if anybody has read over that uh, scripture anytime recently, but it kind of feels like we're getting pretty close to the return of Christ. Anybody else feel that? Yeah. And so if, if that is the case, and I would say we're closer today than we were yesterday. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. We're closer today than we were yesterday. We don't know exactly how close we are, but we know we're getting close to his return. Jesus says this, that in Matthew 24, 12 through 13, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end in love, the one whose love does not grow cold, because of the increase of lawlessness in the last days, that person will prove to have been a true child of God. He'll be saved. Right? Follow me? I'm setting the tone here. Love is important. We got that? We awake? I need a little feedback. Are we awake? Yes. Amen. Okay. So love is very important. I don't know about you, but the increase of lawlessness around me challenges my love. Like I don't typically spend a whole bunch of time catching up on all the latest news and walk away from that feeling just so full of love, ready to just pour out my life for the people around me, right? Instead, I feel just the opposite. 
I feel like, oh my goodness, it is time to build the bunker stronger. Right? Anybody else? Anybody else feel like, okay, I haven't, I've, now that I've caught up on the news, I think I'm going to buy some dry goods, put them in the basement. I'm going to store up some ammo. Too far with that, maybe? Um, that's how I feel when I read the news. Not, I can't wait to go love my neighbor as myself. Why? Because lawlessness is on the rise. And it's just amazing the way that that affects our hearts. The way that that makes our love grow cold. And so, this is so important what we have to talk about today because if you will be saved in the end, that must not happen. It must not happen. Our love must not grow cold. And so, I hope that that sort of gets you on the edge of your seat to hear about loving one another. Let's pray together and ask God to teach us this morning. Father in heaven, oh, how you love us. You love us so much, Father. So much more than we understand. So much more than we feel. And because we don't really get how loved we are, we have a hard time really loving each other. And God, I just come before you and just admit I am terrible at loving people. I am more prone to be critical of people and nitpick people and be judgmental of people and to be proud and to think more highly of myself than I ought to think, than I am to love the people around me, God. And I just confess that and I just say, please help me, God, as somebody who does not walk in this the way that I ought to walk in this, help me to still communicate it accurately, the truths of your word around this. Father, my prayer would be that your church would be built up and that Jesus would be exalted and that the folks in this room would leave here today more eager, more excited to love one another earnestly, practically, than they were when they came in. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... Now to Matthew 22, uh, starting in verse 34. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he, that Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... 
depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the law, all the law and the prophets. So today, we are going to zero in on that second command that Jesus offers when he's only asked, what is the greatest commandment? He feels that he cannot give it without also giving the second, which is like it. I don't know if you've caught the significance of that, but he wasn't asked to give the the two greatest commandments. He was asked to give the one greatest commandment. And he cannot give the one without the other. I think that when Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. I don't think that the Pharisees were shocked by that answer. I think what they were surprised by was that he said, oh, and a second is like it. Because, you see, Jesus knew he was exposing, he was exposing the Pharisees. He's addressing their lack. He's, he's saying, I know you think that you love God and you're so passionate about him. And let me just, ex- let me just expose something here. There's a second command that's like the first, and that is that you love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you see, many, many people who have a very religious spirit about them and have a, a zeal for their, uh, for their religion don't care a thing about people, don't genuinely love people. And I think that this is exactly what was true of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Obviously, they didn't love people. Jesus is pointing this out here, and he's pointed it out before in the story of the Good Samaritan. So he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. The NASB and the King James Version both say hang. The ESV says depend on these two commandments. So if you will, the law and the prophets, that is everything in the scriptures to this point. Jesus is saying all of it. If you imagine this this magnificent scroll, all of God's divine revelation to humanity, all of it hangs like two nails in heaven upon these two commands. If you take these two commands out or one or one or the other of these two commands out, the whole thing falls. That's how important these commands are. And not just one of them, but both of them. Jesus cannot give the one without the other. And so that is my first point. If you're a note taker, um, I'm not used to where this is. Okay, there we go. So this is my first point if you're a note taker, is that loving God requires loving people. It requires loving people. It says in 1 John 4, Verses 7 through 8, we read this together. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What the Pharisees thought and what we have a tendency to think is that the degree to which we understand theology and have it ironed out and the, de- the, the, the amount of information that we know about God, that's what determines if we know God. That's what determines how well we know God. That's the way we have a tendency to think, and that's exactly the way the Pharisees thought. But what this says, what Jesus, I think, is saying in this is that the degree to which you love that is the degree to which you know God. And now, maybe I need to say this. I don't know if I need to say this or not. But when we talk about love, we're not talking about the world's definition of love. We're talking about genuine love. We're talking about the willingness to give sacrificially what is precious to you in order to be a blessing to someone else the way that Jesus did. We're we're talking about not rejoicing with wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. We're not talking about just um, telling everybody that everything that they do is good and okay. That's not love, and that's not at all what I'm getting at. What I'm talking about is loving people the way that Christ loves us. And if we do not have that kind of love for people, we do not know God. If we don't, if we don't grow in that, to the degree in which we grow in love for people, that will show us how well we know God. It says, and just a few verses later in 1 John 4.20, we'll read it together. It says, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And so loving each other, loving people, is required for loving God. To know God truly is to have your heart in alignment with his. And that's why I say that it's not so much about accumulating facts as it is about um, becoming like he is. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, here's what it says. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when we know God as his beloved children, we imitate him. And to imitate him is to walk in love as Christ loved us. And so I hope that this is clear. Um, if If it's not, come talk to me afterwards. We'll dig into the scriptures more together on this. But loving God requires that we love people. My second point is this. 
Loving people requires genuinely liking people. Loving people requires genuinely liking people. Now, some of you were with me until this point, and then at this point you said, okay, I'm out. No, I don't want to like people. I'm okay with loving people, uh, but genuinely liking them, that's another thing. For me, this was revolutionary. When God began to show me how how short I fall from really loving people. Within one week's time, I had a lady uh, in our church come up to me and say, hey, I, can I talk to you? I, I'm, I'm sorry if I've done something to offend you. And I said, do what? Do something to it. She said, yeah. She said, I just, I feel like I must have done something. And I said, no, I, I, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then she went on to explain the way that I had uh, brushed her off in a conversation previously that week in a way that I was short with her. And I, and I was trying to think back and I was, oh, no, 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 I was on my way to another meeting when you stopped me. And I, and you know, I just was, this is not what I said, but I just was too busy for you is what it was. My, my mind was somewhere other than on you. I, I, was, I wasn't genuinely liking you <laughs> at the time. And so the message came across that I didn't love her or that she had done something to hurt me or offend me. And the Lord began to expose how bad I am at loving people. Through that situation through and through another situation in the same week, God began to show me that this is a weakness of mine. You see, everybody says they love everybody. Everybody thinks I love everybody. But it's not true because most of us only like a few people. <laughs> right? We only really want to be around the people who are just like us, right, who agree with us in all the major things, you know, theologically, politically, whatever else. And the people that are not like us, we don't really like, but we love them. We just don't really like them. Is this just me or anybody else? Okay, good. Starting to feel a little lonely up here. Um, this is what Jesus said earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. He said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So Jesus is raising the bar from a mere absence of disgust, right? Like, I think, I think sometimes I have thought, as long as I don't feel disgust when I think about a person, I love them. <laughs> and I've lowered the bar to this incredibly low place so that I can just, like, skip over it, you know? But the reality is, real love looks like genuinely liking people. If we're, to love, if we're to treat people the way we wanted, 
we want to be treated. Don't you want to be liked? Don't you want, when when you interact with a person, when you come into a room, don't you want to feel like they want you there? Don't you want to feel like they enjoy you? Is this not what we desire? That we would be enjoyed? That we would be genuinely liked? Right? A few of you are honestly nodding. Yes, that is what I want. And so, is that not how we ought to treat others? Is that not then what Jesus is saying? How we ought to love others? That we ought to genuinely like them? That we ought to make them feel comfortable in our presence? Can't you imagine how Jesus must have been if sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes wanted to hang out with him, felt comfortable in his presence? Have you ever thought about that? That he must not have constantly been looking down his nose at them if they wanted to eat with him? wanted to hang out with him, what must he have been like? What a joy he must have been to to be with. If the only people that couldn't stand him were the self-righteous, the ones who thought they had it all figured out and had it all together, those were the only ones that couldn't stand him. Because Jesus walked in love. So in order to treat others as we ourselves want to be treated, we need to learn to like people genuinely. This began to make more sense to me as I started studying 1 Corinthians 13. If you, if you want to flip over to 1 Corinthians 13. The passage that maybe you've heard read many times in weddings. First Corinthians 13 is one of the things the Lord used to open my eyes to how massively important loving people is and how short I fall from it. And this is what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Did you hear that? Let me just recap. If you know the language of angels and can speak perfectly in it, but you don't love people, you're you're a noisy, clanging symbol. You have prophetic giftings, and you can give words of knowledge about things happening in the future. You understand all mysteries. You understand what all the people on YouTube claim to understand about what's happening in America. You know exactly how it's all going to pan out. You know how, you know, how it's all going to turn into a one-world government. And, uh, 
and, and you know <laughs> you know exactly what we need to watch out for. You have all knowledge. You understand all doctrine, all theology. You have it perfectly ironed out. You have all faith, so much faith that you could say to a mountain, be removed, and it would get up and walk into the sea. But you don't have love. You're nothing. Does that blow anybody else's mind? Wow. Does it, does it make anybody else think that sometimes we focus on the wrong things? And this is not to say that knowledge is unimportant. It's not to say that faith is unimportant. It is to elevate the importance of love. It is to say these things are hugely important. And if you miss this one thing, it's all nothing. If you miss this one thing, it is nothing. You can... You can deliver your body as a martyr to be burned. And if you don't do it out of love, if you do not love, you have nothing. And then he goes on to explain what love is like. Love is patient. You, you want to know what it looks like to be a loving person? Here it is. This is what really pierced my heart. Here's what it is to look like a loving person. It's to be patient with people. Kind toward people. It's not to envy others or to boast about how much you know or what you can do. It's not arrogant, self-focused, right, or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It goes on to say that love never ends, that prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease, knowledge will pass away, we'll all know all things apparently in the age to come. But right now, the thing that we have that will endure forever is love. Love. So this is what it looks like to be a loving person. I, I just want you to do what I have been trying to do, just compare yourself to this and, and ask yourself where you are not loving people. Are you patient toward people? Are you kind? And, not, and this is another thing that the Lord was challenging me with in the week that he was showing me, began to show me how dreadfully short I fall from walking in this kind of love is he was showing me that it doesn't matter if I think I'm being loving if the people around me do not feel loved. Do you see that? And see, I thought I was good on it and that that was what was required, and then the Lord showed me, no, 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 you're missing the way that you're treating people, Ben. You're missing the way that you are passing them by. You're missing the way that you're communicating to them with the scowl on your face. You're missing the way that you're communicating by not replying to the text or not calling them back when they call you or by not showing up to help them when they need it. You're missing, it doesn't matter if you think you love them if they don't feel loved because that's not loving them or treating them the way I want to be treated, right? And so I started asking myself, am I kind? 
Not just do I think that I'm kind, but do other people say that I'm kind? Friendly, warm, tender-hearted, thoughtful. These are synonyms for kind. Are you warm toward others? Tender-hearted, are you thoughtful of them? That was the biggest thing the Lord was convicting me of. Ben, you're not thinking about other people. We don't have time to go through all of these. We'll look at a couple Love isn't irritable. Some synonyms for irritable. Frustrated. Easily annoyed. Grumpy. Prone to a bad mood. (laughs) Love isn't this way. It isn't resentful. Offended. Feeling of bitterness at having been treated unfairly. That's resentful. Imagine if Jesus had been resentful. Imagine if Jesus had... No one was ever treated more unfairly than Jesus. And yet he, he loved all the way to the end. He washed Judas's feet. He asked, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as he hung on the cross and they spit on him and mocked him. It's not, love isn't resentful. It doesn't insist on its own way. This one, oh, this one (laughs) convicts me so much about how I insist on my own way or I insist on my own way in my home or I insist on my own way in, in how I give my time. Some synonyms, some for this Greek word were flexible, reasonable, agreeable. Do you always have to have your way in an argument or in a discussion? Do you have to have the last word? Do you always have to be right? Do you have to insist on your own way? Love isn't this way. I thought about the way that this plays out for me oftentimes is that I see people as interruptions, which is exactly what happened with that poor woman that I made her feel so small that day. She, she came up, she, tried, she was trying to talk to me, I was on my way to something else, I had my mind somewhere else, and she felt like I didn't care a thing about her. Because I saw her as an interruption. And then I thought about Jesus. And how many times he's on his way to do something else, and he gets interrupted. And if you Just look through the Gospels at all of the miracles that Jesus performs because he gets interrupted. The woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years and touches the fringe of his garment. The paralytic that gets lowered through the roof while he's in the middle of a sermon. The two blind guys that are crying out for mercy as he's just trying to walk by. The Canaanite woman in Tyre who wouldn't take no for an answer when she needed her daughter delivered from a demon. The Roman centurion whose servant was at the edge of death. The disciples, when Jesus is just trying to take a nap in the middle of a storm on a boat. (laughs) All of these miracles that took place in his life because he didn't see people as interruptions. Because he he was able to see God at work when people interrupted him. He saw interruptions as opportunities. 
the Lord's been trying to grow me in this, and I'm terrible at it. C.S. Lewis, who always says things so much better than I can, said this. The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. And so love does not insist on its own way, which means that when you are interrupted, you can see it as an opportunity to love. You can see it as the thing that God is sending you in that moment. So loving God requires loving people. Loving people requires genuinely liking them. And then number three, loving people requires doing life with people. Loving people requires doing life with people. It's this should go without saying, and, and I don't want the simplicity of this point to cause you to turn me off. Because I, I think what God has called us to when it comes to doing life with each other, with other people, is more than what we typically see. Um, if you're like me, it, it's easy to think that because I see the people in my church on Sunday that I do life with them. Or I see them on Sunday and at our mid, midweek meeting. And I do life with them. But God's been challenging me, stretching me in this. In John chapter 15, if you'll flip over to John chapter 15, where Jesus is the Last Supper with his disciples. I keep coming back to this. We'll start reading in verse 9. It's on the screen if you don't have it yet. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, wait just a second. Wait a second. Jesus, as the Father has loved him? Let's just pause there for a brief moment and consider the perfect, eternal love of God, God the Father, toward the perfect Son. And he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's astonishing to me. With the same love, in the same way, with the same passion, with the same depth that the Father has loved me, Jesus says, I love you. And do you know, Christian, that he says this? 
to all of his disciples. Do you know that he says this to you, Christian? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, I think Jesus just raised the bar even higher than love your neighbor as you love yourself when he says, I have loved you with the same love that the Father has loved me. And now I want you to go and love one another with the same love that I have loved you with. That is astonishing to me. How, how is it that he can say in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, plural, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And then in verse 12, say, this is my commandment, singular, that you love one another as I have loved you. And I think the reason is because Galatians 5.14, it says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you could If you could just do this, if you could just love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another with the same love that Jesus has loved you with, you will fulfill the whole law. There won't be a single thing you will miss if you can do this. And I thought, what is the context in which he gives this command? He has lived life with his disciples for three years, right? He has had meals with them. He's prayed with them. He's cried with them. He's laughed with them. He's traveled with them, right? He's done all of life with them. He's taught them. He's trained them. And he says, as I have loved you, as you have seen in me do, go love one another. And this is, all of the commands of the New Testament assume that we are in community with other Christians. All of the one another commands are impossible to do if we're not living life with other Christians, right? How do we bear with one another if we don't have other people in our lives? How are we patient with other people if we don't have other people in our lives? How do we show hospitality to one another if we don't have other people into our homes? We cannot obey the commandments if we don't have other people in our lives. And this all should go without saying, but I I think many Christians who say that they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind Try to spend as little time around other Christians as possible. Instead of saying, because I love God with all of my heart, 
soul, and mind. I want to be around the people of God and love them. I want to love them. Loving people requires doing life with people. In 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I felt the Lord teaching me in this and saying, do you know what this looks like on a daily basis, on a regular basis? This looks like laying down your time, laying down your preferences. Jesus was laying down his life all the way up to the cross, not just at the cross. He was constantly laying down his life for his friends, washing their feet, meeting their needs. And that's what it looks like for us. We lay down our lives by laying down most of the time our days, our afternoons, our evenings. We lay down our lives by laying down our time. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I ask you, who are you exhorting during the week? Not on Sunday, because it doesn't say every week, it says every day. Who are you exhorting? What, what people in this room are you exhorting on a daily basis Are you encouraging so that they're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? And how can you exhort them if you aren't living life with them? And how can you exhort them if you don't know the specific and unique challenges that they're facing? And you know, this this goes both ways. How can you be exhorted by other believers so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if you're not living in community with each other? And if you're familiar, I'm sure you are, with the, the look of the early church in Acts. When it says that the early church in Acts chapter 2, it says, and all who believed were together. Do you see? That's the very first thing that it, that it uses to describe them. And all who believed, well, that's the first thing that it uses to describe them. They believed. They're all Christians. And all who believed were together. They were together and had all things in common. And then in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In order to love each other, we've got to do life together. Day by day, we've got, we've got to break bread together. I mean, how else can we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and making melody in our hearts to God to each other? How else can we teach and admonish one another with the word of God dwelling in us richly if we're not together? How, do, how else can we do what the scriptures are commanding us to do if we aren't together? 
for my church, I'll tell you what this looks like. I don't know what it looks like for your church. For my church, this looks like picnics after, after our service on Sunday. It looks like um, helping people move or do house projects. It looks like going on walks together or runs together or going to the gym together or going skiing together in the winter. It looks like Bible studies in the morning before work. It looks like accountability groups. It looks like discipleship groups. It looks like people inviting other people over for dinner and not worrying about what the house looks like beforehand. Just living life together. It looks like movie nights and board game nights. It looks like actually just having fun together many times. It looks like crying together sometimes and rejoicing together sometimes. And so maybe you are already doing this, but it's going to look different in every context and in every church. What's important is that we're doing it, that we're living life together, that all who believe are together, that we're exhorting one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that nobody gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that nobody gets proud and arrogant, so that nobody thinks that they are more highly of themselves than they ought. So that nobody gets discouraged and distraught by the sin in their lives. So that people can live in the light and in accountability. So that the deceiver can't accuse people to the point that they're so ashamed and broken down that they cannot be around others. We need to remind each other of the gospel. We need to be little Christs to one another. That's what Christian means. It means to walk around as an extension, as, as a one filled with the spirit of Christ. building each other up. I want to finish with this final point. So loving God requires loving people. Loving people requires genuinely liking them. Loving people requires living life with them. And then finally this one, loving people leads to so much more joy. Maybe that's not the best English. I don't know. But I, that's how I feel about this. Loving people leads to so much more joy. You know, this is, I think, the main thing the Lord's been trying to teach me is that the reason I, the reason I pull back from loving people is because I'm afraid that if I give too much of myself, I'll, I'll sputter out, I'll burn out. Anybody else ever felt that tension? I can't... I've got to guard myself because if I, give, if I give too much, I won't have enough. If I give too much, I won't have joy, right? I mean, this is what we're all wanting. We all want joy. We believe that God is the only one who can satisfy our souls. But do you know one of the ways that he satisfies your soul is by you loving people. Did you know that? It says uh, this proverb, Proverbs 11, 24 and 25, has been just a meal to me. I have been feasting on these two verses, chewing on these two verses for weeks now. It says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer 
Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. You know, I've, I think the Lord's been speaking to me so much through these verses because so frequently I withhold what I should give of myself, of my time, of my energy, because I think that if I give, I will suffer want. But the Lord is showing me that the one who gives grows all the richer. It's the one who withholds what he should give that suffers want. I'm afraid I pictured my life as if my love, my time, and my energy is like a bucket. And if I, if I just poured it all out, what would happen? And, and, and so I, I kind of splash a little of my bucket here on somebody. You know, somebody wants some time, and so I splash a little there. <laughs> I splash a little out there because I'm trying to keep some in the bucket. And then I read his word, and it exposes me, and it says, the one who waters will himself be watered. I don't have to keep it in the bucket. You see, we can pour it out, and he will keep pouring into us. And this has been so life-giving to me. I was thinking about the people in my life who love the best. Those are the happiest people I know. Right? Amen? The people that you know who love the best are the happiest people you know. I guarantee it. And those who are trying to withhold what they should give are the ones who suffer want. This has been the way that I have tried to apply this, is that I have tried to ask myself this question in any circumstance and when I have a decision to make, what would be the most loving thing to do here? I've been trying to use that as a filter. If I am supposed to pour out my, my life the way that Jesus poured out his life, then that's a question that I, I need to ask myself regularly. What would be the most loving thing to do here? Loving people does in fact lead to so much more joy. Hebrews 12 says, says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's look to Jesus the one who loved God, his father, among other things, by loving us. By laying his life down to purchase a bride. He loved us not only in word, but in deed, in his actions. You know, as I was thinking about this, and this, I want to wrap this thing up. But as I was thinking about this, 
and why it is that so many of us have a hard time really loving people the way that we've been called to love people. One of the, one of the reasons, maybe, some of us have grown up in homes with a dad, maybe a mom, who said that they loved you, but they, you didn't really feel like they liked you. And I want you to know that that isn't how God sees you, Christian. He doesn't say that he loves you, but not really like you. I want you to know, Christian, that Jesus, he loves you and he likes you. Do you know that? I think I, think I, I, I can almost see some of us, we... we we bristle at that thought. Oh, I don't think he really likes me. Yes, dear Christian. He loves you and he likes you. He wants friendship with you. And I think one of the reasons that we see so much cold Christianity so much cold intellectualism, so much of a lack of love in Christianity is because of Christians who think that God loves them, but they don't believe that God likes them. And so that gets reflected in how they treat other people. They love people in the same way they, they believe that God loves them. They love people with a bit of a judgmental angle, looking down their nose at other people, nitpicking them, because they believe that that's the way that God looks at them. How freeing it would be if we could see and really understand how loved we are. Paul understood this, and this is why he prayed for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, he prayed that according to the riches of God's glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. In order to walk in love as Christ walked in love, we've got to start here by knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you cannot know apart from a spirit-imparted knowledge. And so I think that's where we need to start is by asking God that he would impart that knowledge to us, that he would give us that revelation. So pray with me. Father, would you do this? Oh God, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you give us strength to comprehend with all the saints how loved we are?
by Christ, through Christ. Would you help us to grasp this, to know this, to feel this, to walk in this, in order that we might be able to love each other with the same kind of love that you have loved us with. Holy Spirit, do this in our hearts. Give us the strength to comprehend this. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.